0: Welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today, I'm here with Jay Rogers. He's the entrepreneur's mentor, the author of The Bet, and a seasoned mergers and acquisitions professional entrepreneur. Started many companies, sold just as many, and I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with you today, learning from your experience. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Thank you, and I appreciate it because my whole life at this point is dedicated to trying to help other entrepreneurs grow their companies, create jobs, and strengthen the foundations of this great country. It's
0: important, right? I was reading some of the stuff you had in your show notes, and I agree, not nearly as many companies are starting as they were in previous decades. We have fewer startups. And on top of that, we have a lot of business owners that are aging out of the market. We have business owners who are in their 70s and they still own businesses and they don't have a succession plan. Those have to go somewhere. A large percentage of our economy is based off of these small to medium-sized businesses owned by, I guess what they call
1: them, the baby boomers of these
0: days or whatever the nickname is they have, but.
1: Well, Craig, you've nailed it. Craig Hall and his, many of your people, I think will know Craig Hall. Craig was a self made millionaire in his twenties and his thirties. He was a billion dollars in debt and got out of it without bankruptcy. Today, I think he owns a hundred thousand apartments and he has written two books on entrepreneurialism and one of them I have here on my desk, boom, what you just said, mm-hmm. so there are right now over 3,200 counties or state divisions of parish, whatever it might be in our country. How many of those do you think account for a half of our startups? Probably about 10 of them, mm-hmm. right? 20 out of 3,200.006%, I'm proud to say five of those 20 are in Texas. And we've got about a half the number of startups and Ronald Reagan said it real well when he said that the entrepreneurs and their small enterprises account for virtually all the employment growth in the country.
0: Right before COVID hit, I think you live in Flower Mound or in that area, like according to your no.
1: profile. I had, my ranch was in Flair Mound and I still keep my office out here. I'm at 83. I've now moved into Fort Worth and live in a condo above the Omni hotel, but I okay. spent two or three nights a week out here still. So let's
0: talk about your journey. Let's talk about, like, I jokingly say on the show all the time you were born and then you ended up on a show about mergers and acquisitions. Could you fill out the gap in between? We could probably spend a day or two talking about your life story, but Tell us how you kind of become an entrepreneur and then some of your the highlights of your adventures in life so that we can learn from them.
1: Thank you. And you say become an entrepreneur. The fact is, I sincerely believe that entrepreneurs aren't trained or taught they're born. And I'm sure you're familiar with Gino Wickman. One of the things I recommend to people, and Gino's book, this is he's got a newer version now, mm-hmm. but entrepreneurial Leap. Chapter five in this and the newer version is a self-assessment to see if you are an entrepreneur, and I think it's well worth taking people that are thinking about getting in. You don't have to be to have a small business, but if you're not, you need to surround yourself with the right type of people to support your efforts.
0: Yeah, I think it takes an entrepreneur to start one and an operator, what I call an operator to run one. Your entrepreneur is like, I'm an entrepreneur. I've been one since I was a kid. We were doing lemonade stands and whatever, selling Whatever I could sell, I always won the sales contest, whatever. They had fundraisers at the, at the school or whatever. And I would sell so much on some of those things. It was like, they, they would ask me how I did it. And it was like, I would go into town with my father and there was, he worked in a factory and I'd go to all the different factories around town and go talk to the owners and convince the owner to walk me around and let me sell to his employees. So I'd be doing 30, 40 sales at a time when I would do them. Like I walk into a factory, I had 150 employees, I'd make 30 closings. And
1: again, I think entrepreneurs are born uh, for the most part. Straight out of college, undergraduate, I was with Kodak for a few years, but I always knew I was going to get out on my own. And I've now uh, started and sold about 20 companies. My M&A attorney has handled the last 14 of those sales. And one of them that I always like to refer to is Smart Start. Smart Start, the first month we were in business, putting up Device on cars that if you'd been convicted of a DWI or a DUI, you had to blow in and pass a breath alcohol test before you could start the car. The first month we had one customer and $60 revenue. Today, that company is in 18 countries, is the world's largest, has 1,800,000 customers and a billion dollar plus company. And along those same lines, a lot of people. I think I'm a great starter, but when they get up to where they need professional management and what I call the button boys, it's time for me to get out. Now, Craig Hall's a good example of an entrepreneur that not only has the talent of starting companies, but he also knows how to take them to the big time and stay aboard. I don't do that. I kind of try to get out once it knows it's on its way to the moon.
0: What's interesting is a lot of entrepreneurs have to, do the, it's a downfall of many entrepreneurs that they don't step out of their own way. I know I'm really good at starting things, coming up with ideas. I know I'm not a great operator. A good sign that you're not a great operator is if you hate doing the same thing over and over again, you're probably not a great operator. And if I have to do the same thing more than two or three times, I try to figure out if I can assign it to one of my assistants or if I can have a piece of software written to do it for me because it just that's not my nature. I want new, fresh problems. I want new, different things to do. If I have to crank the gears to get the widgets to come out and I have to turn that crank every day, the same way, I'll find somebody else to do it. Just not me.
1: I hear you. What you talk about small and mid-market companies. What do you think most of your audience, what size companies do they have?
0: That's a great question. They're looking to buy and grow companies right underneath the private equity radar, and that depends on the industry. So in most industries. They're at $10 million and less. Some of the bigger industries where it just takes a lot of capital to get going and stuff like big manufacturing companies, PE won't touch them under $20, $25 million. So most of the people listening to this show are playing what we call the multiple arbitrage. So they'll buy companies from mom and pops that are doing, most of these guys are using SBA loans. So they're buying companies where the total purchase price is less than $5 million, So they can get an SBA loan on it. And their goal is to buy one, two, three of those, put them together or to just simply grow that company to the point where it crosses that threshold and is interested to the private equities or to the strategic buyers. Because while we can buy these companies at 2x and 3x seller's discretionary earnings, when we go to sell it to private equity, it's not uncommon for them to get 7 or more x out of them.
1: Absolutely. And the million dollar on the bottom line number is kind of a significant number. I'm glad your companies are that your audience is above the needing to use a local broker as opposed to getting an investment banker. It's two different worlds, and I encourage people to get their company up to where it's attractive to the people purchasing, as you're speaking of. Last company was a GPS tracking company, and at 80 years at that time when we sold it, with all the deals I've done, I had never really had a true SaaS company and it was an education. I thought this company would bring 10 or 12 million. AKKR bought it for 25 million cash. And it was absolutely because they look at reoccurring revenue as a multiple rather than EBITDA. For the older
0: dual hybrid, if you've got blended income, they give you a different multiple on your recurring revenue than they do on your like one-time service contract revenue and two three years ago it was insane the multiple they give you now it's come down a little bit in the last year because the economy's is best with them but when i first got in this two or three years ago i'm a computer nerd by previous training i wouldn't even touch sas because i couldn't compete with the guys that are buying them these guys expected the sas companies expected 10x 12x 13x or more of revenue some of them are like i've had phone calls from people where they thought they were getting 30x
1: it might be appropriate to talk about the rule of 40 does that come up often in your
0: no i have not heard
1: the rule of 40 so what is that well it, particularly in SaaS sas companies but it applies pretty much across the board the rule of 40 simply says that if your percent of annual growth Plus or minus your percent of profit equals 40 or more. You're in great shape. The last company we sold it a very interesting, The uh, two fellows that ran the company for us came to the board meeting in December, a year before we sold it and said that next year we can grow the company a million dollars and put a million dollars on the bottom line and grow 5% or we can grow 40% and put 300,000 on the bottom line. And it's the board's choice where you want us on this line between 5 and 40% growth. And the board said, we're a SaaS company. Let's go for the 40% growth. They did grow a little over 40% and they put actually 330,000 on the bottom line. So they had it pretty well nailed. That's a great job
0: predicting. I find that most operators are really good at predicting what's going to happen. Most entrepreneurs are either way over or way under, depending on the entrepreneur, right? They're either pie in the sky, I'm going to do 10X by next year, and they're way off, or they're like, hey, we're only going to hit this number, and they blow through it, they pass that number in the first
1: quarter. Well put, and I see that same when people, to me, typically follow a, pretty much a regular curve. And when you start up the side of the mountain, after you maybe had losses the first year or so, and then start up, when you're at that point where you're going almost straight up, mm-hmm. and I'd say that's the period where the owners uh, get the bad habit of smoking their own dope. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that, that is the time to sell because it doesn't last forever. And so i always I, i've always told people i've made all my money selling too soon and too cheap
0: yeah, but that's the way it has to happen because it's just like i used to do a little bit of day trading until i got burned really bad and like okay i don't need to be in this i had the four monitors i had two workstations this is back when you didn't have flat monitors right there were big chunky crts i had four of them on one desk and then on l-shape i could turn to do four i had two different power systems uninterrupted power system two different internet providers i was in the middle of trades i could turn if one system went down and pick up my trades i had software that was syncing them together so i'm not saying we, this wasn't a small operation i was playing with less than a million bucks for me it was significant and you can't time those peaks you lose a lot of money trying to like okay I, I hear entrepreneurs all the time, yeah, I'm going to sell it, but we're climbing, we're growing so fast. I'm going to sell it when we, right before we get to the peak, I said, well, don't ever tell a buyer that it's at its peak. You want to sell it like well into that growth cycle. So they see some of the up cycle. So they see some of the ways that it's going to grow and they can, the story that they see isn't, this is at its peak and it's going to decline from here. The story that they have to see the story of increasing. I know people that do apartment complexes and they leave five or six units untouched. I asked him one day, I said, why do you do that? You can increase the value of this when you're going to sell it. And then he goes, I got to leave something for the other guy to see that he can improve the value of the property. If I don't, then it looks like it's maxed
1: out. Well, that's a, a very interesting observation. I like that.
0: You're not going to time the top of that, Mark. I think you made a lot more money selling on the way up, knowing it still got some room. You're like, you built it, you see it. You, it's kind of like turning your kids loose. Like, okay, I did a good job. This is going to grow. It ain't going to die next week. I'm going to hand it to somebody that, and just watch it flourish. Right. As opposed to, Hey, I've ridden this, this ride until it's become uncomfortable. <laughs> and a lot of entrepreneurs do that. They'll ride that ride right up to the second. Like, Hey, this isn't growing anymore. I don't know why. I guess I'm out of my class. I should sell it now. And well, I was like, no, you should have sold it six months ago.
1: Absolutely. So, Another subject that I mentioned that I find helpful to, When I'm mentoring people and that is years ago, I used to always try to have three years of audited financials before I sold a company. And I think that's still a great thing to do if it works for you. But nowadays, the quality of earnings audit that you can have done can really allow you to replace three years of financial audits. When we sold our GPS tracking company, well, it's been two and a half years ago. So uh, as you talk your two to three year period, we were at the top of the mountain and it was a great time to sell, but uh, we got a quality of earnings. And as a result, the investment and what that does among other things, number ours happened to show that they thought our revenue and our true profit might even be bigger than what we reported because I'm a very conservative in my accounting. But so that was a positive. But the big thing it does, when people are looking at you as a purchase, they have to spend a lot of time and money. Mm-hmm. That quality of earnings report allows them to say this is a for real company that we can afford to spend that time on. We had 67 non-disclosures signed by prospective buyers before we sold that company. We in And I just think that quality of earnings report is worth people thinking about and considering. Yeah. And depending
0: on the company, a lot of people think that's going to be outrageous. It depends on how complex your company is and how much time it takes them to do it. But I have a, I just interviewed a guy, actually the show went out this week who does quality earnings report. He's a Harvard grad, did quality earnings report for big firms. Now he's doing it on his own. And I think his start off and in the range where we're buying companies and looking at companies. I think they'll run around twenty twenty five thousand dollars to have it done, and in the grand scheme of selling a multi million dollar business, that's a pretty good investment to make.
1: Absolutely, you say that's one I can pull up on your website.
0: Yeah, it's uh, Elliot. I think it's his last name, well, Elliot I, Holland. Elliot Holland is the guy you, you want to this. look
1: for. Oh, I read a little about him. Well, I'll be darned. I may contact him because I may be able to refer some business.
0: Yeah, he's sharp. He's a Harvard grad. He's passionate about this. He's in our area these small to medium businesses 10 million and below just because he sees nobody's doing QAE quality of earnings reports for him and doing them right I have faith that he's in it for the right
1: reason and he's passionate about giving quality work in that same vein I think it's awful important for people to understand how how critical it is that they keep their books clean 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 so many people, try to live off of their companies and their personal expenses or cars or insurance or fuel, you name it. And they're really cheating themselves because when it comes time to sell, if they've hidden those real well, they won't get recast. If they haven't, the IRS may want to talk to them. And it just, clean books add so much value in the buyer's eyes. I just think There's nothing better than being able to have, and the other thing a lot of people do is they start overpaying themselves grossly, and that's a terrible mistake because when you do, number one, you're paying ordinary income on all that money. Number two, you make it harder to justify a recast because the buyer is happy to say, well, that's what that position ought to get. And even more important, you should, if you need more money to live on or want more money to live on, you can borrow it from the company at the lowest legal interest rate, which is not much. And having done that, pay it off at the sale. That way all your money is capital gains instead of ordinary income.
0: A lot of people don't know they could do that. Actually. I asked somebody, so why do not you just take a loan against the company instead of a dividend? You're going to sell it in two years. Cause he had a bunch of cash sitting there and uh, I seen he withdrew the cat. He did a big dividend when he, you know, a year or two ago where he took money out, owner's distribution. And it's like, why did you, you gotta pay taxes on that, right? And he goes, yeah. I said, why didn't you borrow the money from the company, pay it back interest. And we could have wrote that all off when we sold it or when I bought it or somebody else bought it, because you can't do that. I was like, no, you can't do that. Apparently it's done all the time. <laughs> you can't do that. Like, no, apparently you can't. Other people do it all the time. So. Let's talk about the, uh, I do want to talk about the books because you got a new book out. You've contributed to one. You've written another one prior to that. You've got a lot of knowledge. Let's talk about the bet. What is the bet and why did you write it? What's inside of it?
1: Well, let me back up a little. The book I had it wrote ahead of the bet, both on Audible and on Amazon, never got a review that wasn't five star. Awesome. It didn't get a huge amount of exposure, but I think I had... Uh, well, there was several dozen reviews, all of them five, stars. So very proud of it. I see but 39
0: on there right now that are all hundred percent, five stars.
1: So well, great. And the bet is even number one, the title of the book is because Brown publishing in Dallas, has been in business 27 years mm-hmm. and. Millie Brown, the owner and founder is a good friend. We were in the Joe Mancuso CEO club together and other functions. So I've known her a long time. When I talked to her about publishing my book, she gave me an estimate and I said, Millie, if I'm going to sign a contract with you, there's a couple of things I want to do different. One, I don't want an estimate. I want this to be a firm price. If it costs you more, tough. If you do it for less, great. So I'll write you an upfront check for the publishing cost here. And number two, if we're gonna do this, I wanna bet you $10,000 that you won't sell out the first printing in a year. And Millie looked at me and said, Jay, are you betting against yourself? And I said, absolutely, Millie. She thought another moment, stuck her hand out, and we have a $10,000 bet. But it's a bet I can't lose. And she's the only one that could lose it. There have been many great things that happened because of the bet. She started out by flying a photographer into Texas from LA to shoot the cover of her and I Shaking Hands. I'd say, it. is that
0: Millie on the cover? Right. Cool.
1: That's the grade to the bet. And she assigned a gal that is the world's greatest support i write my own stuff but this gal's a good shoulder to cry on and listen to in fact the lady her name is bonnie hearn hill and bonnie has just finished writing a book for the uh, and she totally ghost wrote this one for the i think the richest lady in china she's got all kinds of awards has written many of her own books But just because of the bet, Millie is watching over it like a mother hen and wants to make sure. And the other thing I'm very proud of is, let me see where I've got, oh, here's one. I have worked closely with, and they work, and I should mention, in addition to the book, about 13 years ago, I had a vision for a great program to help entrepreneurs And it's called Biz Owner's Ed. We now have a couple hundred people attend each of the 10 sessions each year. They run from four in the afternoon to eight at night, every Tuesday for 10 consecutive weeks. And that has been a great way for me to, like I say, my only goal at this point in life is to help entrepreneurs keep our company full of small business. But in my acknowledgments in the bet, I started out. It is with a great deal of pride that I recognize the personal assistance and support I received from four of the world's top entrepreneurial leader teachers listed alphabetically, Norm Brodsky, Vern Harnish, Kerry Santos, and Gene Wickman. I am very, very proud of that. that they have all been to our biz Owner Ed program in Dallas. I
0: reached out to Gene Wickman to have him on the show. And unfortunately, I didn't know this, but he had sold... The uh, basically has another CEO running EOS now. So I had uh, this current CEO of EOS on here, but uh, no, Gino, Wickman. he responded to me personally himself and we chatted back and forth online and I don't remember if we got on a real quick call or anything, but he's like, nah, for this purpose, for what you want to do, you need this other
1: guy, but he was very personable. Oh, he's great. I'll tell you Gino during COVID, he went a year and a half only on zoom and virtual (laughs) presentations. His first live presentation after a year and a half was Star Group in Texas, and had occasion to spend a half a day with him in Detroit the other day. And Vern Harnish, of course, started EO, wrote Scaling Up. And so, and I might add that, of course, you're not directing to startup first time business owners, but Norm Brodsky's book, Street Smarts, I think is one of the greatest books ever read for someone in their first entrepreneurial venture.
0: Yeah. services, tax advisory, and even fully outsourced accounting, Reconciled has got you covered. They help you make the best business decisions, keeping your end goal in mind. And the best part? Reconciled understands acquisitions as they have acquired three accounting firms in the past three years, and their founder, Michael Lee, mentors others in searching for acquisition, raising capital, or trying to aggressively scale. Reconciled invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconciled.com today and let them get your books in order. Reconciled, making bookkeeping a breeze. That's Reconciled.com. The funny is uh, I've started a few. I felt miserably at some of them. Did okay on others. But uh, once you hit a certain age, it's like, okay, I don't know if I want to go through that. that the win-loss rate for starting businesses statistically is not very good. You can beat that if you got a lot of experience and you really selective what you start. But statistically, it's like one in or 5% of them make it past the first 10 years and the only so many percentage of those ever hit a million dollars in revenue. And I discovered this world of mergers and acquisitions where I could step in and for a decent down payment and some commitment, buy something that's already passed all those hurdles. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's right. got product market fit. People are using it and it's still on that ride up. I don't look for anything that's declining. I'm not interested in anything that's a turnaround. That's a skill set left for other people. The audience here, we're looking, that's what we're looking for. It's well-run. It's growing. We see rooms for expansions. We see things that the current owner didn't do that we could do, and we can contribute to the growth of the company.
1: I've got to tell a story after those comments of yours. One of the companies that we started it was called Healthcare Staff Resources. We staffed a physical therapists, occupational therapists, and pharmacists. It was, in my mind, Hooper Homes, a big company, was the perfect buyer. So I contacted Hooper Homes, and this was early in my career, I guess. And they sent a vice president, a lady that had been an RN with them, and was now a vice president, to look us over for purchase. Well, she came and I spent the day telling her how incredibly well-run our company was and all the good things. If I had been listening instead of talking, or had I done my due diligence before she got there instead of after, I found out after when I got a letter saying they would not be pursuing the purchase. And I just knew they should have bought us. When I got that letter... I did the due diligence I should have done on the front end, and I should have listened to her because she told me part of it. It turns out she had been an RN with the company and had recommended to them that they buy a particular company in her area of expertise. They put her in charge of that company, and in about a year and a half, she'd doubled their revenue and tripled their profit. When she came to look at me, she was looking for another way to win. And instead of talking about the things I hadn't taken advantage of and the mistakes I was making, I was shooting off my mouth the whole way. That happened many, many years ago. I haven't done that since. Yeah.
0: So one of the favorite questions I always ask sellers, people who are selling their businesses, what are we looking to accomplish here? And that's the same thing if you're on the selling side and you're like, your buyer comes in and is like, what are you looking to accomplish? Like, what are you wanting to do when you buy a company? And if you would have took a, took just a second and said, what is it you're looking for? What are you looking for in a company so I can give you the right information? She probably said, she probably told you her story. She probably would have just come out and said, I turned the last one around. I did this and this. Then you know what to do, right? You're a natural born entrepreneur. You can't be a natural born entrepreneur without having a little bit of salesman in you. So you just gear the conversation, honestly, of course, but you gear the conversation to what they want to hear,
1: right? A couple of stories that, that fit all that. I learned, like say, that was one of my big mistakes, but I learned a lot from it. I tell people when you're showing a <clears throat> prospective buyer through the company, you go by a department, you call over the supervisor and say, George, who's at that, that corner office and what does he do? Buyers want to be sure that the person that's walking away with the check isn't walking away with any value in the company. In fact, when we sold AKKR, our GPS tracking company, I gathered the board together and I said, now that we've done our bit and have our investment banker hired and, and all, none of us will ever, including myself, communicate in any way with any prospective buyer. And they all kind of looked, well, what do you mean? So we will email, we will write, we will talk, we will not get on the phone, period. And the whole thought is we presented our company. And then truth too, we're all a bunch of old farts that are trying to get liquid and make sure our wives don't have a problem after we kick off. But as a result, we had the two guys that were great. I told you earlier about the one that put the graph up. They met with all the prospective buyers, all the way to the finish line. And we never showed up except closing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it added value to the company. It also helped that, that you didn't end up
0: with a set of golden handcuffs. You show up to all those meetings and you show up and, and present yourself as an integral part of how this thing works. A lot of these strategic purchasers and even like private equity and stuff like that, they're going to want you to hang around. Very strategically, what you did, and whether you knew it or not at the time, you probably did, is you showed that the two younger guys that were presenting throughout the process, that's a capable and ready set of hands. If they need a golden handcuffs on anybody, (laughs) here's your two guys that shackled in this business after it's sold, as opposed to all you did is show up at closing. You never seen me. You never talked to me before. Why would you need me around afterwards? Right?
1: Well done. And as a matter of fact, just before we sold, I made sure the boys each had 20% ownership, so each of them walked away with 5 million and they put part of that money with the buyer, which adds more emphasis to the point that they can run it.
0: Oh yeah. They probably did an earn out for those guys. Yes. And then both sides get what they need, right? The buyer gets, somebody who can stay there and confidently run the company. You as the seller get to, to leave. It wasn't your first dog and pony show. You've done this before. You know what people are looking for. So many small business owners are surprised that they're like, I'm gonna sell this and run this other project. I was like, you're not prepared to do that. It's like, why? Because you are too integrated into this business and anybody that buys it's gonna have you stay around.
1: I tell everybody I mentor that's preparing to sell The more vacations you take the last year or two, and the longer they are, the more your company will bring.
0: Yeah, we've had quite a few guys on the show that teach us stair-stepping vacation. And what that is, is, okay, you decide you want to sell, tell everybody at your company you're taking a two-week, or at least a week vacation next month. And they're not allowed to call you unless it's an emergency. And then four months later, you tell them you're taking a two, you double it, take a two-week vacation. And then... By the second year, because you need three years of earnings and tax returns and all that stuff anyway, by the second year, you're up to like, I'm taking December off. You're running this on your own, right? And then taking December and July off by the the year you're selling. If you can be gone for two months out of the year and it comes back stronger, like you come back to a business that's running as well or stronger than it was when you're gone, now you're ready to exit and or sell. And there's a good chance you can prove to a potential buyer. You don't need to be there.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so true. Your first job as the owner is to work yourself out of any reoccurring job. So you, we talked a little bit before the show
0: started about, when you start a business, you start with the, I'm going to exit this at some point. So many business owners, especially your mom and pop, brick and mortars type of businesses, they just don't think that way, right? They got sick of their last job. I call them accidental entrepreneurs. So a lot of these guys are truly accidental entrepreneurs. They have the entrepreneur spirit, maybe. But uh, they were working someplace, they realized they were not a great employee. They think they can do it better, especially like the trades, heat and air companies, pest control, brick and mortar, small manufacturing, that type of stuff. They were doing something somewhere and they seen a need that wasn't being fulfilled. And they said, I want to step out on my own and do it. Or they started running something as a side project. And then a buddy wanted one like, hey, can you make me one of these? Or can you fix my AC? He's like, yeah. And the next thing you know, two buddies won it. And the three but like, you're making more money on the side than you are at work. And you own this company you accidentally got into. That's where these lifestyle businesses, I think, build up because nobody trained them to be an entrepreneur. Nobody trained them how to run a good business. Same thing goes with doctors and dentists and stuff. They don't teach business school. Maybe they do now, but my generation, your generations, when you went to dental school, you didn't learn anything about accounting or finances or running a business. You learned to fix teeth. You learned how to heal people or how to give them medicines. <laughs> I don't think that most doctors don't heal anymore. They just write prescriptions. That said, I'm looking for your, my notes here. Your education company, that's a huge win. I mean, I, I think somehow you got to convince these business owners like, yeah, you've been running it for 10 years or five years, but why don't you come and visit this thing that shows you how it needs to be run if you ever want to sell it.
1: Well done. And and to get back momentarily to, to what we were talking earlier that some books could have been written in 10 pages, but the bet, I think every page or every part of the audible provides value to someone that's building their business. And just like our biz owner ed program in DFW, my only goal in life is at this point to help as many people as possible grow their companies so they can hire and strengthen the world and the economy. I've been real disappointed in some of the governmental moves that have weakened, in my opinion, the small business and entrepreneurial world.
0: So what's the concept behind the bet? I mean, I know it's an entrepreneur, like you said, all-in-strategy to win in business. Are you in, is it?
1: I would say that there are at least fifty serious lessons that are well explained that the reader can apply to his world. And so it's all stories of entrepreneurial settings I've been in. I maintain that the best deals you'll ever make, whether it's buying or selling or whether it's building the company, the best deals you'll ever make as an entrepreneur will be made with smart people. And. I say that and someone says, well, what do you mean? You can win a deal 51% to 49. But I find that if you deal with really smart people, you can add 20% value and you're much better off losing 59 to 61 than you were winning 51 to 49.
0: (laughs) Right. And like in business, other people don't get it, but one plus one doesn't always equal two, right? When you put two great entrepreneurial minds together. It's exponential, not linear. So selling to somebody really smart or buying from somebody that was really smart, as long as both people have great intentions for the other, it's incredibly different than just A plus B, right? It's not as simple as a lot of people make it is, okay, he has a widget. I bought the widget. I'm widget's mine. Like, no, not only did he have a widget he created, but he has industry knowledge and experience and a vested interest, if nothing else, psychologically to see this thing not die on the vine after you have it. So he's willing to take those calls. That's why the PE firms and a lot of these guys leave some skin on the game on the table for the previous owner. A lot of times if I'm looking at something, I want the previous owner involved to some extent. So I leave something, I want to buy 80% of it or 90% of it.
1: I love all that. It's so important. Many of the people that have bought companies from me Mm -hmm. are good personal friends today because I just, I'm not into a win-lose. I want both sides to walk away better off than they were when they sat down. And you can make that happen if you're... I've had many of the people that have bought companies. I cruise a lot, and a lot of them have joined us on cruises, and it just makes... life's short. You better have fun while you're doing it.
0: I have never cruised. I have to try that, travel a little bit, but I I just never been on a cruise. I don't know why I haven't. Before my mother-in-law passed away, they went on one and they just loved it. And some other friends of mine went on one recently and they have loved it. I've even been offered one where they asked me to speak on one and they were going to pave my way and go for free. Lots changed since I've had little ones. I'm 51 and I have a seven-year-old and a 12-year-old. So I started a little later than most. But uh, when I was young, I didn't really get to know my father until I was old enough to work for him because he was a workaholic. He had worked in a paint factory. Then they painted houses on the side until I could wield a paintbrush and climb a ladder. 11, 12, 13 years old, I worked full time for my father. Whenever I wasn't at school, I was working for him because I got to hang out with him. He told me no at first. My dad's like, you're not old enough to work for me. So he went to work. We lived five and a half miles from town. I grabbed a push mower and started walking and pushed my dad's push mower all the way into town five miles one way and mow lawns all day. And I'd been doing it for weeks, oh. mowing lawns to make money because he told me I wasn't enough to pay for him. Talked to this guy. He was going to give me 30 bucks. His yard it was really overgrown. This time I had a weed eater with me. Back then it was, there was electric weed eaters. And eventually figured out how to strap it to my bicycle and drag it in. But uh, now I got bit the police got called and the cops were talking to my dad on the radio through the phone. And they said, let me talk to my son. And the cop had to tell him, well, he's over there, finished mowing that lawn. When they were looking for me to talk to my dad to see if I was okay, if I need to go to the hospital, he's like, he's over there, finished mowing the lawn. And the first thing, my dad is like, why are you in town mowing somebody else's lawn? Like mom knows, ask mom, I'm busy. You know, I got to finish this real quick. So he found out and I got to go work for him after that because he realized if you're going to work that hard, I'll figure out how to make it work for us. But yeah, so we all have our uh, determination. That's one of the things you'll find in entrepreneurs. I see that with all the—you didn't just start one, sell it, make some money, and go into retirement and hang out on your cruises. You have that spirit. You have that fire because anybody who started and built as many businesses—and I'm—I'm going to make a gamble here and say you've started in more businesses than you have on your spreadsheet here. These are the ones you want at. You probably started some that didn't go too well, and
1: you—and allow me to say, even in my book. Mm-hmm. Talk about a couple of my failures yeah. I think the subtitle in the book, uh, one of them is my most successful failure. And the truth is if you're an entrepreneur, you should be focused on what is the lesson and a failure can be worth more money than a success. And I went to the Harvard OPM program three weeks each year. Probably learn more from the fellows, members in the class at that time, there were 86, I was 27 companies, our countries represented. Mm-hmm. Marty Marshall ran the program at that time. And one of the lessons that I took away, and I think is very valuable is that you cannot create a business and entrepreneurs find a business that not served or underserved. And that's where opportunity lays, the Ford Motor, if you'll remember, spent billions trying to put the Edsel on the market and they're one to market for it. And it was a world's most expensive flop. And gotcha. you just keep that in mind and remember you're trying to serve an underserved or serve a unserved market. You'll do a lot better.
0: Yeah. Some of us have actually created a business where you want something or you think you want something. So you go out and it's not out there. So you go out and create it only to learn the only person on the freaking planet that want it. <laughs> right?
1: At one point when we just finished some major projects, I started a business just for fun. And that was selling handmade, made-to-measure cowboy boots in West Texas and elsewhere. It's a A lot of great stories from that, but the one I think of from your comments is Katie Barkley, who was my assistant in that company, did the measuring and had studied with the handmade boot company. We're out in West Texas and she's talking to a rancher and he says, Honey, I don't need no boots. I got 36 pair of boots. And she looked her right in the eye and said, sir, we're not discussing need sold them a pair of white ostrich quills. <laughs> boots
0: i wore boots for years and years i still have a pair of alligator skin boots in there right now that probably i think the cheapest pair of boots just catch me in are a few hundred dollars and
1: those were probably close to 1200 i'm sure they were back in the 70s when i had that boot operation our average ticket was 500 the one thing
0: i'd always wanted to do is the like there's towns in in Mexico and stuff where they have really good bootsmiths and stuff, and you can get things done fairly reasonable. I've always wanted to go down and have a pair of made, I have awkward feet. So one of those like really wide. So it takes a lot to find boots that are wide enough at one side and not have really high arched or all the weird stuff that you can put on a pair of boots. Like I'm just not wearing these on day. Like I don't ride riding boots at all. They hurt my, the arches of my feet, the ones with the higher heels. A lot of people wear those. I just, I can't.
1: Yes. we. Are. too bad I didn't. Run on to you when we were selling the handmade, made to measure. We took care of a lot of problem feet.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting concept. But uh, These days, there's still, that's such a, it's even smaller of a niche market now, just because just so many fewer people are wearing them, right? They're still pretty popular in Texas. So let's go back to the book and in, 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 in your entrepreneur side. What is it you're looking to do right now? You got the book out that was just out last month. You're helping entrepreneurs. Is the education company still around?
1: Oh, our Biz Owner's Ed program? Absolutely. That's a year-round program, and we have special events throughout the year, but 10 weeks, it starts next year, it'll start the second Tuesday of January and runs every Tuesday. And we have a couple hundred people at that event. And we just have some incredible speakers, and Craig Hall is going to be speaking. And he's our mentors. Have to be invited. They have to have taken a startup or a stagnant company to mega millions. Then, to top it off, unlike any other volunteer program, they have to write a $5,000 check to the nonprofit to prove they're serious about giving back and helping. And oh, okay. Craig signed up and he will be with us as a speaker next year. We're looking forward to that. I
0: was going to ask if it's in person or is there a Zoom version of this or do you have to go to
1: this? Oh, we worked closely with Carrie uh, Santos, who was the CEO of Entrepreneurs Organization International, and we're putting together a program on a test basis to stream the program into several EO chapters. And... They just didn't have enough staff dedicated to making it work, I hold the plug on that, but the door is open. So we're doing all we can. My wife and I don't have children and, and all of our estate will be left for the benefit of serious committed entrepreneurs. We just believe that it's critical to our country. And it's, as you pointed out on the front end, there are about half as many and Craig Hall points that out book startups as there was a generation ago.
0: There's a lot of really cool tools out there right now that take that technology and put it out there. There's one actually, uh, it's going on right as we speak. As soon as we get off here, I'll jump right back on. And so uh, there are about 20 speakers involved in it. It's just a three day event some friends of mine put on, but yeah, there's cool tools like this tool we're using right here to record. But uh, these days taking it online, it's a little bit more if it's live just because of the setting, right? But if you have the right text in place, you can actually be live in person and live online and have, if it's a paid for event where people pay to attend, same thing, you can take the payments online. You can even, like some of the tools and stuff will even have attendance requirements where they'll tell you if people are not attending and showing up and that type of stuff. So we're about at the end of this. So let's talk about how do people get your book? I see it's on Amazon. It's on Audible. How do people realize?
1: I have a website that is J. Rogers author. Dot com and there they can get either the audible or the book from half a dozen different. We had the book launch at Brown Books on book launches, the biggest book launch they ever had where you have a big gathering and sign books. they had put out 300 and some books at the launch at our launch here about six weeks ago, we broke 900. <laughs> so we had a real good following.
0: Awesome. Well, I'll make sure we put that link in the show notes for everybody out there who is looking for that. And I want to thank you for being here today. I learned a lot from you. I enjoyed having this conversation. If you ever need anything from me, reach out. You got my email address now. I think my cell phone's that's actually attached to the bottom of my email address. If you ever need anything from me, like see somebody on the show that you'd like to talk to, I'll make a personal introduction. I'll three-way call them for you if you want. All right. I appreciate that. I appreciate having Elliot's name, and I'm going to contact him
1: as a result of our conversation. Yeah, I think
0: his company's Guardian something, but uh, some people you interview, and you're like, yeah. Some people you interview and like, man, that guy's really got his heart in this. And I think Elliot's got his heart in this for a, for accounting. I've got a master's degree in marketing and they made me take a few accounting classes as an MBA. I, and to know somebody has their heart in accounting is special to me because I didn't like it much. <laughs> so I know for a fact that it takes a special person to have your heart in this and to really want to look at that and help people get through the numbers. That's a high level quality for
1: me. Great to talk to you. Appreciate it very much.
0: All right. You have a wonderful day and thank you. We'll call that a show. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created 5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT enabled businesses generating between 5 million and 30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A to decision makers who are ready to buy.